The Lord be with you. Let's pray. May the words of my mouth, O Father, and the meditations of all of our hearts be pleasing to you. In the name of our reigning, living Lord Jesus Christ, amen. Well, Paul was in a pickle, and frankly, he was pissed off. And uh, he had just returned from Galatia with Barnabas, and four things happened. This is about uh, 15 to 20 years after the resurrection of Jesus. Four things happened quickly that uh, resulted in him writing the letter that was read and that we've been looking at these past two Sundays, the letter to the Galatians. First, Peter came up from Jerusalem to Antioch and was sharing in the fellowship of the church there, uh, eating with Jews and Gentiles alike at the same table until he didn't. Second, people came from Jerusalem, supposedly from John, claiming and teaching that the Jews that were eating with the Gentiles there in Antioch had to stop it. Peter, as we know, decided to step back from the table and agree with these folks from Jerusalem. Third, then Paul got word that the small communities of Jesus followers in Galatia had also been approached by a group of folks from Jerusalem claiming that if they really wanted to become members of the family of God, they had to be circumcised. Paul was angry, confused, so he whips off quickly this letter to the Galatians, and then he prepares to go to Jerusalem to sort things out with the brothers there. So what's the backstory? Well, Barnabas and Paul had gone to Galatia and visited four cities there. These cities were not just your normal cities. These were Roman colonies. That means retired military from the conquests of the Roman Empire had been given money and land to establish these towns in Galatia. It was a part of Rome's controlling the various provinces. And so these Roman colonies is where Paul went, and these colonies were directly related to Rome in such a fashion that the Caesar cult, that is to say the civic divine nature of Caesar, was celebrated through festivals, temple worship, and the like. Luke says that Paul taught this message as his gospel. He starts by talking about David, God's choice of David, and the promise that at some point God would appoint a new David. Then he moves from Abraham to the story of Exodus, to the settlement of the land, to Samuel, Saul, David again, and then jumps to the story of Jesus, and he highlights how the resurrection of Jesus affirms the promise of the David of David's promise for the Messiah. He's telling the story of the Torah, the ancient story of Israel that most of the Jews knew, was new to the Gentiles, but the Jews knew it, but yet Paul was telling the story with a different and stunning climax. He was saying, 
that the hope of Israel was fulfilled in Jesus, the Messiah. This was the good news. This was the gospel that Paul was announcing. Now, first century Jews knew that the law of Moses had a problem. Everyone knew that Deuteronomy ended with the challenge that Moses said that, hey, you people of God who are supposed to have this vocation of expressing the spirit of, of God's love, righteous justice into the world, you're going to fail in your loyalty to that covenant. And it's not going to be pretty. So that problem hung over the heads of the people of God for centuries. But now, Paul is saying that in Jesus of Nazareth, God has broken through in that problem and provided a new world, a world of the forgiveness of sins. Israel has been forgiven, and now, through the Messiah, the whole world is open to this world of forgiveness. In Psalm 30, one of the lectionary passages for today, these were the words that the psalmist wrote. I will exalt you, Lord, for you lifted me out of the depths and did not let my enemies gloat over me. Lord, my God, I called to you for help and you healed me. You, Lord, brought me up from the realm of the dead. You spared me from going down to the pit. Sing the praises of Lord. You, his faithful people, praise his holy name. This, friends, is resurrection language. This is the language of new creation. This is the language of the new world of forgiveness that was opened by the Messiah. Now, to some Jews and Gentile proselytes, this is good news. The Jews are saying, oh my goodness, Israel's been forgiven. God is acting as he'd always promised. For the proselytes, the Gentiles who were worshiping with the Jews and had been circumcised, they said, oh no, we can actually now join the ancient people of God. But uh, for some Jews, this message was scandalous. I mean, come on. Whoever heard of a crucified Messiah? It's a contradiction of ideas. And to, other, and to the Roman rulers, it was a threat, especially to the Roman colonies in Galatia. Because if this new David had actually arrived, he would upstage everything and everyone, including the big guy across the sea who we worship. You see, since Julius Caesar had given the Jewish people the privilege, unique of all the peoples in the empire, of not having to be required to worship the Roman gods, it's quite possible that both the leading Jews as well as the leading Roman in the cities we're aware that this new community of Jews who were not circumcised and yet still were not coming to the civic celebrations and festivals of the Roman system were a threat to the stability of the city. Well, there's pressure there on this little community of Jesus followers. And from at least the time of of Stephen, the Jesus followers in Jerusalem had been under tremendous pressure because the Jewish leaders considered them disloyal to the temple and to the Torah. 
And now, the Jewish establishment was hearing that some of the diaspora were being told by this fellow from the Jesus Followers Movement that they didn't have to follow the Torah. The pressure on the community in Jerusalem was immense. Thus, these people went to Antioch and to the communities in Galatia, warning the, Jew, the new Jesus people that, hey, you've got to be uh, circumcised if you're going to join the family of Abraham. You see, according to Jewish law, Jews should not eat with Gentiles because that would imply that the Gentile pagan lifestyle was acceptable. So they had to be free from eating with Gentiles. And secondly, if they wanted to be a true Jew, a true family, member of the family of Abraham, they had to be circumcised. Paul was angry and frustrated. And so he whipped off this letter to the Galatians and then took off to Jerusalem to try to sort things out. In Galatians 6, that Josh read this morning, there are three key ideas that follow along in the line of argument that Paul makes in his letter. First, is that we carry each other's burdens, and that means we live in unity. Carrying one's burdens leads to unity in the church. Second, if we harvest the fruit of the field of the Spirit in our relationships with others, we find that we are able to live in shalom, in peace, the way God intended. And thirdly, these are the ways in which we're able to live into the new creation that God has started in the death, resurrection, and ascension of our Lord Christ. So, if you have uh, Galatians 6, it would be good to have it in front of you. We're going to take a look at these first 16 verses in the chapter of Galatians 6, and it might be helpful to have it in front of you. You see... <clears throat> When Paul had gone to Galatia into these four Roman colonies, he had established communities that were characterized by one, equally, all people were equal at the foot of the cross. Jewish law was able to point in the direction of righteousness, but it was only Jesus and his death that made it possible for salvation and the forgiveness of sins. Second, everybody was equal in Christ, in the Messiah, in loyalty to the Messiah. We just saying, I am his and he is mine. This is what loyalty to the Messiah means. It's that bond. The Messiah has fulfilled the covenant, so everyone who is loyal to him is, has equal footing, equal standing. And that means that all members then who have loyalty to the Messiah are members of Abraham's family. And they are to become a blessing to the nations. Now, when the people from James came to Galatia, it caused tumult, conflict, and suddenly the Galatians began looking at each other in ways differently than what Paul had been teaching. They began to consider the example that if they were a Roman citizen worshiping, they said, oh, I see, I'm, I've got Roman citizenship. I'm a little, I can look, look down a little bit on you. I don't 
you're not equal with me. And then there were the Jewish Christians who were feeling smug because, hey, they're really people of the ancient covenant. I mean, we, we have real membership in Abraham. And then there were Gentile Christians, pagan Christians, who had been, uh, been abused by their neighbors, rejected by their neighbors because they no longer participated in the Roman rites. But they were also looked down upon by the Christians now in their little communities because they were Gentiles. The important thing to recall here is that these differences were not in belief. They were in status. They all agreed what they believed. They all agreed that the events surrounding Jesus of Nazareth had in fact taken place. His death, his resurrection, his ascension. And they believed that the Spirit of God was now being poured out. They all agreed to that. But the division was in my economic status, or my ethnic identity, or in my history of my group. In chapter 5, that Byron talked about last week, Paul sketched out life as it should be in the spirit, living in the flesh, living not living for the flesh, but living in the spirit. And it's important to remember once again that this flesh-spirit division is not physical, spiritual division. Flesh and spirit are embodied in human flesh. These are ways of living. So it's not the uh, modern way of thinking, well, this is spiritual and this is physical. No, it's two competing lifestyles, patterns of life that are rooted in certain kinds of emotions and certain kinds of commitments that are expressed in a lifestyle, a way of life. Paul now takes what he was talking about in chapter 5 and applies it, not to individual Christians, but now to the community. And so in this sermon, these, these comments, as we conclude, are directed to a community, to us as a community, more than to us as individuals, although obviously there are individual applications. And Paul wants the people of God not to be concerned about what they believe. He didn't have a concern about what they believed. He had a concern about how they were thinking, their mindset. I recall when I was in graduate school, I grew up in a Christian household that was marked by the spiritual, physical division of life. It was marked that there were things religious, moral, spiritual, and then there were things that were physical, political, public, economic. And these two worlds often didn't coincide. And in fact, my parents wanted me to go into the pastorate because my interest in politics scared them that I was getting into some dirty business, unfitted for Christian experience. That was my background. I ended up at Duke University in graduate school, and after the sermon each Sunday morning, several of, our, of us graduate students, about 15 or so, would gather at different graduate students' apartments and discuss the sermon and have lunch together. There were political scientists, historians, ph physicists, chemists, artists, a wide variety of majors. And as I sat there in those conversations over lunch, I was totally confused. They were speaking English, 
I knew every word they were saying. I had no idea what they were talking about because they were relating their different fields of endeavor to Christ the King, to the gospel, to the announcement that this new age had begun, that the forgiveness of sins was now available, and that a new way of living was possible. About six months in, it finally dawned on me. Oh my goodness. Jesus is the Lord of my passion for politics because he is the king of the world. Even politics bend the knee to this sovereign Lord. And it changed my whole way of thinking of what I was being taught in graduate school about political science. In a nutshell, it's not about power, who gets it, how to use it. It's about justice. That changed my whole way of thinking. And this is what Paul is asking now the Galatians, to, remove, to move from the marks of the world that shaped their thinking into a new way of thinking that's marked by this new age that the Messiah has brought in by his death on the cross. We are told that if we follow the law of the Messiah in verse 2, that this, you want to follow the law? Okay, follow Messiah's law, not the old Jewish law. How do we do it? By carrying each other's burdens. Messiah's law, of course, is the law of love. It's marked, it's the way that true spirituality is expressed in life. The self-giving lifestyle that encourages others, not boasting and showing, setting aside my own individual interests for the interests and for the flourishing of others. Messiah carried a cross for us. We are to carry the burdens of others. If I see sin in another, I must remember that maybe tomorrow I will step into that same sin. If it's my responsibility to put things right, okay, I do so without arrogance and in humility. Here's the paradox of genuine community living. To carry each other is the way to unity. Now, we cannot slide through community life when this is a character of the community giving to each other and assume that because I'm in this community, I can rely on other people's devotion, other people's service, what other people are doing. No. You see, it takes both wings to be able to fly, serving others, but then taking care of my own stuff. I am responsible for my own stuff, as well as giving self-giving love and support to others. Bear one another's burdens in verse 2. Balanced by each of you must carry your own load in verse 5. Now, we've actually experienced that, haven't we, in a way, in these last weeks. As our dear sister faced death and then crossed over, many of us were involved in helping the family, in sitting with her, in being present through a variety of ways. And those of us who were not directly engaged were praying, 
and we're carrying the burden in our heart. This is what builds unity, carrying each other's burdens, and then stepping up. How many of you provided meals? How many of you sat by her bedside? How many of you provided transportation? Stepping up and giving needs, meeting needs. This is the kind of thing that builds unity in our community, and Paul knew it. And he was asking the Galatians, this is true spiritual life. This is the life of the Messiah. But beyond that, Paul also wants them to think differently. No longer thinking like Roman citizens with privilege because I'm a citizen of Rome here in this Roman colony. Also a Jesus follower, but I'm a Roman citizen. Or I'm a Jew. Sure, I'd follow Jesus now, but I have the ancient history to back me up and my community, my group. And then, of course, the pagans who had given up the pagan lifestyle, the rituals, the festivals, and therefore were being persecuted and questioned by their neighbors. We've experienced a little bit this about what it means to help each other, carry each other's burdens in thinking differently. Early on in WCF's history, we had a great struggle of debate over peacemaking and just war. There were people in our congregation that had different ways of thinking about that. We had a panel, and I can remember being on that panel along with some others. And I remember as we were preparing, we prepared together, that is to say we would meet together before the panel actually took place and share what we were going to say. And I can remember a brother who was on the, I was on the just war side, by the way. I'm, you know, I'm a reformed Calvinist type. Uh, there was a brother on the Anabaptist side, a peace, peacemaking uh, brother, and after I had explained what I was going to say and he had explained what he was going to say, uh, we chatted together and he warned me that some of my language would not be received well by people from his point of view. And he didn't have to tell me that. I could have gotten up, blown myself up in front of everybody, but he loved me. And so he warned me, why don't you say it this way? He wasn't trying to change my opinion. He was trying to carry my load. And he did it in a self-giving way that kept me from being embarrassed. You see, we, we, we do this here. We can do this here. We've done this here. And we need to be reminded by Paul again that this is what we need to do. Some of us, I'm afraid, are concerned that WCF is not a peacekeeping church or is not a just war church or is not a creation care church or is not a socially engaged church. That is to say, known by the community around. What did Jesus say? He said, how will we know? How will the world know? How will those around us know that Jesus has come? It's how we love each other. It's not the particular program, all of which are good things that we put out front. It's how we love each other, even in our disagreements. How we go about loving each other and how we go about our thinking and helping each other understand how we think differently 
It's how we show the world that we are marked by the reign of the Messiah. In uh, verse 6, Paul says, if something is being taught the word, if someone is being taught the word, they they should share with their teacher all the good things they have. Now, frankly, this is about financing the ministry. Sowing and harvesting seems to be on Paul's mind from chapter 5. So he's saying if members sow in the spirit, giving solid support to the church's ministry, they themselves will bring in a harvest. But if they sow in the flesh, that is, say, perhaps spending resources on numerous pleasures of life, then they'll have to show for it only as corruption and decay. And then in verse 10, Paul says, So then, while we have the chance, let's do good for everyone, and in particular, the household of faith. That Greek phrase, do good to everyone, was a phrase commonly used in the culture to demonstrate or to talk about what philanthropists did in their society. This was a word in which People of means were able to give to help the community flourish. Paul is saying, hey, we need to be doing that. We need to be marked by that kind of generosity, that kind of self-giving love, and also within the household of faith. Obviously, underlying this is the Christian view of money, that we are responsible to God, for how we spend it. Wise stewardship. But it also is a sign of the shalom that is possible for us to experience. Shalom is everything that God intended from the beginning. It means right relationships with him, right relationships with each other, right relationships with myself, peace with myself, and right relationships with the creation. God's good order. So if we sow in the Spirit, we will harvest some aspect of the way God intended human relationships to be. Notice the comparison with the prosperity gospel, marked as it is by the consumption of the world. Prosperity gospel says, if you give a lot, you will receive a lot. The true gospel says, if you give a lot, you and others will flourish and experience the peace of God. The measure is not what I get. The measure is the flourishing of the community in which I live. So in verse 8, it says, So if you sow in the field of your flesh, you will harvest decay from your flesh. But if you sow in the field of the Spirit, you will harvest eternal life from the Spirit. Eternal life. What is that? That is Paul's way of saying, this is the new age that has begun in the resurrection of the Messiah. And you are invited to step in to that age. Whether in financial or in moral life, in verse 9 it says, those who who 
persevere, who don't grow tired, who don't lose their enthusiasm, will experience life of the Spirit, will experience a measure of the shalom of God. I would argue, based on the experiences of our, our church, the church's history, that this congregation will flourish to the extent that we engage in the flourishing of the community around us. If our community flourishes, we will too. The love of the Father sustains us in our enthusiasm for living this kind of life. Reminds me of what happened yesterday afternoon. We had grandchildren over, and they were little Ann, who's two and a half, was uh, swimming in the little pool, wedding pool. And she was just so enjoying it. She was looking at her daddy, and she just started saying, I love you, daddy. I love you, daddy. She was there in the water, you know, I love you, daddy. And of course, her father, our son Scott, would repeat, I love you, Ann. I love you, Ann. And they went back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. Not two minutes later, she's in a scuffle with her brother about what they're going to do with the balls that they were playing with. And her father says, Anne, can you help me put the ball in the basket here? Oh, yeah. The argument was over. She went and joyfully put the ball in the basket. Are we joyfully engaged in what our father is asking us to do? We will be when we hear his word. I love you. And when we say back to him, I love you. In the last uh, segment of Paul's letter, beginning at verse 14, he lifts our eyes above the conflict in Galatia, above the church's congregational mess, and lifts our hearts and minds above that out into the rich, wide-ranging purpose of God for his creation. The cross for Mark, uh, for Paul, marks a cosmic shift in the universe. Notice, not only has the Messiah died, not only have Christians been crucified with him, he talks about that in chapter 5, but he also says the world has been crucified. Calvary is a turning point in the history of the world. The cosmos has been given a death sentence in the cross of Christ so that it can pass on to the new creation that God is inaugurating. God's new world, born out of the old. This new creation began with Jesus himself at the resurrection, continues with the Spirit giving new life which wells up in us, all who follow and are loyal to the Messiah. This is the heart of everything for Paul. The cross is at the heart of everything for Paul because it's the inauguration of the new creation. With the cross of Jesus, the old world is delivered and the new world is promised. How can anyone who has glimpsed Jesus as the crucified Messiah want to cling to the values, the ways of thinking, the patterns of life of the old world? You see, what matters is neither circumcision or uncircumcision, Jew, Gentile, Roman citizen, pagan, that doesn't matter. 
What matters is the cross of Christ. Neither the marks in the flesh of the Jew nor the absence of such marks in the Gentile. The gospel of Jesus invites all of us to share in his blessing in this new life. Those who respond in faith are thus given the title in verse 16, the Israel of God, the people of God. People of the new creation, living in a pattern of life that the world sees, that demonstrates the self-giving love of our Messiah. For the Galatians and for all of us who believe in Jesus, we are God's Israel, God's light to God's world, called to get in line with the measuring rod of the new creation and to share God's peace and love to a watching and hurting world. I guess the question for us then is, what are the marks of our community here at WCF? Or perhaps more closely, what are the marks of the particular circle in which I live and worship and have friends within our community? What is our self-image of ourself? What are the identity or the identifying marks of my little subgroup here at WCF? Is it denominationalism? My church background? Is it perhaps my ideologies commitments? Left, right, liberal, conservative? Are we marked by those identities in our real life together? Or are we marked by the passion of Jesus, self-giving love of the cross? Remember, Paul says, I no longer live, but the Messiah lives in me. Why? Because he loved me and he gave his life for me. Our prayer must be that we learn to live into the marks of the new creation. This is who we really are, people. This is who we really are. Marks of new creation, carrying each other in unity, Harvesting the peace of God's shalom, caring for the poor, working for human flourishing in our, in our community, living into the new creation, not presuming that we know what the new creation means today, but being willing to confront the difficult issues with each other in love in our common life. In unity, we can talk about our differences. In peace, we can seek to understand and see things differently. And by doing so, we can live into the new creation by staying at the table together out of loyalty to our Savior. Let's pray. Holy Spirit, would you mark our hearts and our lives by the signs of the new age, by loyalty to our Messiah King, Jesus, in whose name we pray.